0: We finished last week talking about suffering, and it's a great topic. There's not any um, day this week that I didn't encounter or hear about someone's suffering. And it's likely true for you as well, if you think about it. The person who cut my hair this week asked me what I had done that day, and um, I told heard that I've been in meetings for most of the day, and one of them was canceled, and I had the opportunity to begin studying for a message that I was going to give this Sunday. And she said, well, what, what's the message you're going to give? I said, well, groaning in hope, suffering with hope. And she said, well, could you share it with me? So I just kind of gave her the highlights of, of the text that we're hopefully going to be able to cover today. And uh, she, she shared with me some of her suffering of the day and, and her current um, struggles with her life. And then she thanked me for uh, saying that she needed what I had shared with her. All of us have suffered or are suffering, whether you think you are or have not. I, I talked to one uh, person this week who said, I've not suffered in my life. So I gave him some examples of what suffering is, and he said, well, okay, I think I have. And he wasn't lying. He, was, he, was just, he just lived long enough to know lots of people who had suffered a lot worse than he had. So he just said by comparison, he really hadn't suffered. So he was, he was just acknowledging that, really, where he was coming from. Um, we, we live in a fallen world, if you've noticed. There's lots of problems in this world. That things don't work the way they're supposed to work. Eight million die of cancer in the world every year. 580,000 die in America of cancer every year. We have ISIS on the war path, Islamic State, killing lots of people. We've had um, the earthquake in Nepal that killed 8,000 people. We had 120 degree heat in India that took several thousand lives. Um, we've had lots of flooding in Texas. We've had tornadoes in Colorado and other states the overturned riverboat in China that killed 400, and so on. So all you have to do is pay attention to the news or to your own life, and you you encounter suffering. So let's look at this text that talks about how do we have hope in suffering. um, Where we are going to focus is from verses 18 to 25, but we're going to start reading verse 16, where we left off last week. So one of the reasons we stand for when we read the word of God, which I'm going to ask you to do that, is because we're hearing from the living God. This, this is not just man's word. This is God's word. and So we're, we're standing in acknowledgement of th- this is the words of the living God. So would you please stand as we read this text? Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 25. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons of God. the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit to see the truth of these words and to show us how Christ gives us hope. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're God's children. We fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. The hazard of suffering, whether our own experience of it or shock at the suffering of others in the world, is that we may not trust in Christ. We may lose our faith in God. Um, The question we are faced with when we must decide whether we are going to trust God in our suffering is, can I trust what God offers as a reason for hope and suffering? In verse 18, um, well, what we saw in verse 17, is suffering by itself doesn't produce any eternal good. So just suffering by itself doesn't create good for us. Suffering with Christ and in Christ, independence upon Christ, actually produces eternal good. And it will really be worth it. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us that doesn't apply to just the easier-to-bear suffering. It applies to all suffering, no matter how terrible it is. The glory that will be revealed to us will far surpass the pain, the frustration, the anguish of all of our suffering and affliction. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So light versus weight, um, momentary versus eternal, glory versus affliction. In fact, glory in the Hebrew means includes the meaning weight. You say, well, I thought in glory I'm going to lose weight. I'm, I'm looking forward to being a slimmer version of me. It, it talks about substance, really, about value valuable substance like gold, precious metal. And that's, that's a sense of, of glory. The end of the verse says the glory that is to be revealed to us, and it really has this meaning that the glory that will reach out and be bestowed upon us. Have you ever suffered through some hardship, hating it, feeling that it will never end, longing for it to be over, like training for the race? You're hating all the running that you're doing. You're hating the physical drain and all of that, but it's so worth it in the end or at least potentially worth it in the end. In verse 19, Paul says, For this is how central our future glory is to God's plan. For the creation waits with eager expectation and longing for our revelation. The literal sense of the original word, eager eager longing, is stretching the head forward. So the whole creation is stretching their craning their necks, looking looking to see, hey, are they glorified yet? Are they glorified yet? Are they all that God's redeemed them to be yet? The whole creation is literally standing on tiptoe, eagerly anticipating the revelation of the glorified sons of God, because that revelation will be the fulfillment of creation's redemption as well. In verse 20, once again the word for, Paul will explain why the creation waits so eagerly for the revelation of God's sons. It's because the creation was subjected to futility. What does subjected to futility mean? The creation was caused to to not work right. It was made to be unable to reach its original created purpose, which was to be a perfect environment for people and creatures to flourish in, to show the glory of God and his goodness. Creation didn't willingly do that. It didn't ask to be uh, corrupted. Uh, Creation didn't just break down of its own. It was subjected to it, and and that was by God because of Adam's sin. God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin, because man was so central to God's purpose in creation that when man rebelled, God unblessed the creation so that it would be defective, so the earth would have been 100% productive, work would have worked, Wouldn't have been painful, toilsome, futile. Uh, There would have been no nasty or disastrous weather, no disease, no pollution, no poisonous and deadly and destructive animals and insects. I wonder what the mosquito would have been like apart from the fall. The meaning of all misery in the world, the meaning of all misery in the world is that sin is horrible. It's a cosmic treason against an infinitely good, just, holy, and loving God. So all natural evil, that is corruption in nature, disease, disasters, is a statement about the horror of moral evil. That's what we're supposed to get from the broken creation. Is sin is really bad. Have you been in hotels where they have like a little sign on, on the towel rack saying, um, uh, don't, if, if you're not going to use a towel, if you're going to use a towel again, put it in the bathtub so we, we don't have to wash it. Re, reuse your towels rather than get fresh ones to reduce water usage. And so you can help save the planet and save the hotel some money. We should do all we can to be good stewards of God's creation to not be needlessly wasteful or carelessly destructive. But in the end, it will not be man who saves the planet. It will be the very one who subjected it to futility, God. In fact, Paul says even when God subjected the creation to futility, he did it in hope. He he hardwired hope into, into his plan. As far as creation goes, we see the hope that still awaits us in verse 21. So, verse 21 picks up, God subjected creation that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The hope is that the creation will be liberated from slavery to corruption and decay. So, when God subjected creation to futility, he put into law, he put into place the second law of thermodynamics, which very simply, and I need it really simple, is that all systems tend to increasing entropy, which is a word that means to increasing disorder. Everything in creation corrupts, decays, and wears down. Loses order. No matter how much good is in creation, and, and even in this fallen world, there's still a lot of beauty, isn't there? There's Mount Hood. There's Crater Lake. There's awesome oceans, waterfalls. Beautiful spring days, brisk fall days. But the creation is perpetually in bondage to corruption and decay. So back in 1980, Mount St. Helens blew its stack. The weeds grow like crazy. Tree-killing beetles proliferate, and so on. Those who regard the earth and and nature as, as supreme and ultimate often see man as the problem. To see humans as being like an invasive species that the world would be better off without. And certainly man's sin was what prompted God to cause creation to be broken. And man has been responsible for a lot of damage, for sure. But the cure for the corruption of creation is, is coming from the freedom from corruption of the children of God. When God's children is, are glorified, resurrected with sin-free immortal bodies, then all of creation will be set free from bondage to corruption. So because of Jesus, I'm an environmentalist. And you should be too. And you're wondering what the punchline is. So to whatever extent global warming is occurring, it is part of the larger reality of global frustration, global futility of nature. If you want to save the environment, get saved. So you can be glorified, and all creation is going to follow suit. That's what it says in this text. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until God's children are glorified and creation is liberated, it will continue to groan in its brokenness. To describe the creation as groaning together is obviously poetic language. God's purpose for creation to be beautiful, life-sustaining, and reflecting His glory was not entirely lost. So the groaning together represents the collective frustration in its futile efforts to function as God designed creation to function. So we can be certain that creation won't ultimately be destroyed or self-destruct. Earthquakes and tornadoes. Hurricanes and droughts and famines, floods and heat waves and volcanoes, including this dormant one that we're standing on right now. Aren't you glad they know, it, know this is a dormant volcano? In case of volcano, the exits are here. Or there will be a new exit created. But these are just the, they're not death pangs, but birth pangs. Birth pangs tend to get worse when the baby is about to be born. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Somebody might be aware of that. Whatever destructive events there will be from the earth itself or that is caused by humans, they will not bring the ultimate end of the earth. Jesus said wars and famines and earthquakes were but the beginning of birth pangs. But when God's children are glorified, God will cause a new earth to be birthed. There's a new earth to be birthed. And <clears throat> verse 23 says, And not only does creation groan, but we groan. The creation doesn't groan alone, never groan alone, always grown with somebody else. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So what does it mean to have the first fruits of the Spirit? The first fruits in, in Israel was the first portion of crops or flock They were considered holy and were dedicated to God, and they were a foretaste and pledge of the the blessings and bounty to come. It's like uh, what Paul says in in Ephesians 1.14, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What the Spirit is pledging or guaranteeing for us is our adoption of sons, our resurrection. In 8.15 in Romans, in one sense, we're already adopted by God, but We haven't experienced the fullness of it yet, which is the redemption of our bodies. Until then we experience the futility, like the creation, of not perfectly glorifying God as as we were designed to. The Spirit creates the longing in us for our full conforming to Jesus Christ. He gives us a foretaste of our future glory, and we want it. So we're longing, you're longing to be perfect. If you haven't already arrived, you're you're longing for it. It's created that, go ahead, build that thirst for perfection is created by the Holy Spirit. We groan inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We hate the sin that so easily, uh, closely, uh, sticks to us and clings to us. Our groaning may or may not be literal, audible groaning. It is that heartfelt disappointment and dissatisfaction with the ways we don't love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't wait until we are perfected to love and know God wholly. We groan over the burdens and pains of living in a fallen world. We groan over yet another destructive storm or earthquake. We groan over another school shooting. We groan over the racial conflicts that continue. We groan over the political dysfunction. We grow weary of our sicknesses. If we're enjoying good health, we go through seasons where our family members are sick. Some with serious cancer or other afflictions. Deaths of loved ones and friends grievous, leave widows and widowers and children in the pain of the loss of their, of their loved ones. We have relationship struggles with spouses, children, parents, crazy uncles and aunts. Everybody's got one. Cousins, friends, neighbors, fellow students and co-workers. Even in good marriages, there are strains and and sorrows and disappointments. I disappointed Patty at least once ten years ago. (laughs) She'll never let me forget it. I just talked to a friend this week whose wife divorced him a few months ago. And now his daughter wrote him a letter saying she wants nothing more to do with him. He can't see her or his grandkids. In a world of suffering, Christians are to groan over the evils and sorrows of this world. We don't want our hearts to go cynical, bitter, cold, hard. We don't want to rely on groaning avoidance solutions by self-medicating. But we are to groan in hope. And that's what he talks about in verses 24 and 25. In what hope we were saved, he says, in in this hope we were saved, in verse 24 the hope of our full adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Of course, we don't see that hope fulfilled yet. If we did, we wouldn't continue to hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience, meaning endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. It means bearing up under difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean just passing time waiting, like standing in line for a ride in Disneyland. It means prioritizing your life, making choices about how you use your time, your relationships, use of money, work, how you suffer in light of the future hope, how you focus your heart. If you value what you're waiting for and you know it's certain to come, then you can wait patiently for it, eagerly, patiently. Like it says in... In 2 Peter 3, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, not stressed out, not freaking out, not anxious about everything, but eager for the fullness of God's redemptive plan. That's where our hearts are supposed to be majoring on. If we can plan for our vacations, if we can plan for our financial portfolios, if we can plan for our hobbies, then we can plan for God's kingdom to be fulfilled, to pour our hearts into that. The movie Tomorrowland is about a place that exists in another dimension that offers hope for a better future for the earth. The people of Tomorrowland enter our world to recruit the brightest and most hopeful to get a vision of Tomorrowland and offer a better future. The heroine, meaning the female hero in the movie, is, is one who hasn't given up hope. In at least trying to picture the possibility of a hopeful future, the movie is better than most recent movies about the future, which picture a dystopian it's a dark, pessimistic view of the future. But, of course, the world won't be saved by merely finding the brightest and most naturally gifted hopeful people Because unless they trust in Jesus, the movie didn't talk about that, and are resurrected in sin-free glory, they will still carry the destructive seeds of sin. The movie actually alluded to that in its own way. I said at the start that the biggest danger for our suffering is that we can conclude that we can't trust God who would allow us or or our loved ones and the world to suffer so terribly. We can easily see why children need to trust their parents even when they do not understand them. We should also trust God because He earned our trust in the cross. He earned our trust in the cross. We can trust Him even when He hasn't shown us yet the reason why. And not only did Christ's sufferings on the cross remove the eternal suffering we deserve, but He guaranteed that all of our remaining suffering in this life is not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. God's love is measured and manifested in the incarnation, Christ coming and taking on flesh in his death, paying for our sins so for his body and for his blood. That's the measure of his love for us. So we're going to receive the elements representing his body and his blood now. Um, he invites us to this meal if we trust in him. If we believe that by his life, death, and resurrection we have eternal life, we can take these elements and be telling the truth that we believe that by his body and his blood, his death and his, his life, we're saved. We have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. We have the, com- the confidence that God is for us, the confidence that God loves us, the confidence that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's prepare our hearts to uh, take these elements together. If, you're, uh, if you trust in Christ this day, this meal is for you. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then you can do that right now. Just say, I need Jesus to save me, to forgive my sins, and to give me everlasting life. And this meal will represent that faith. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then just um, talk to us after the service, and we'll talk to you more about what that means. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the life of your son, the death of your son. Your word says as long as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim that by his death, he has purchased us from slavery to sin, from corruption. And with that, he's guaranteed us life, sin-free glory one day. We're in between that now. Already we have that gifted to us in our adoption, but not yet do we see it in full. So, Father, with this meal, um, meet us and refresh and renew our hearts in, in the faith that we have in Christ, in the reality of his being for us, his life and death having saved us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.